We are in a series, um, a series that uh, uh, we discussed doing back last Yom Kippur uh, on the doctrine of the last things or what's called eschatology. I know that the primary issue of the questions of that, uh, that time were really about the place of the dead uh, who have died in the Lord. And uh, I talked about a few things. We talked about it in, as we read the book of Jonah about Hades and all of that. And uh, so there was a, a, a lot of questions about that. And I'm getting to those. In fact, next week I'll actually be addressing that. But I thought that we needed to have a background in order for that to be understood. And so we began with the purpose of the creation, the world that was, the world that is, and the world that is to come uh, at the beginning of this series. Then we looked at man being formed from the dust of the ground and the breath of God being uh, put into us so that we are living beings. What happens at death when the when the body goes back to the dust from where it came and the spirit back to God where it came and then uh, the reuniting of that in the resurrection where we have a transformed body and we will be forever in, um, in, that, in that state. Then we looked at the covenants, the Noahic covenant that really addresses the present time, day and night and seasons and heat and cold and winter and summer. And uh, the days of Noah that led into this present uh, covenant and then the days of Noah that will lead to the end of uh, this present time. We looked at the Abrahamic covenant and the uh, sign of circumcision. We looked at the Mosaic covenant and the blessing of God upon Israel in the land as they obey the, the covenants, uh, the commandments. We looked at the Davidic covenant and the uh, promise that the son of David would sit on David's throne and how that ties into the Lord Jesus. And then we looked at the new covenant and the promise of all things being made new that the scripture uh, talks about in that context. When God will ultimately write his commandments on the heart of his people and they will obey completely uh, his commandments and his glory will be seen in his creation. Last week we looked at the kingdom of God. I said the kingdom from heaven. Uh, because it will come from heaven and encompass all of the creation and all of earth. And so today, we will look at uh, judgment and salvation. Not a very popular, well, salvation's popular, but judgment's not a very popular uh, notion. Remember that I suggested at the beginning of this series that we're given enough information to know when the events will happen in their immediacy, but not enough to predict in advance. Uh, because Jesus, the angels, the prophets, and the apostles, and the writers of prophecy today uh, do not know the time that is reserved to the Father only. So we're going to look at the subject of judgment and salvation. And these are doctrines that have direct bearing on our general subject, the world to come and the latter days. Um, but they are really somewhat underappreciated, as in the case of judgment, or they have been seriously altered in emphasis, as in the case of salvation. So if we understand them correctly, we're going to understand the last days and the world to come in a much better um, context. So I want to define these uh, two doctrines to some extent. So when I talk about judgment, you know what I'm talking about. When I talk about salvation, you know what I'm talking about. Because we have a tendency in 
in the Christian world who have altered these doctrines uh, somewhat to diminish the issue of judgment and to personalize salvation almost to the point of it's all about me being saved. So judgment. The subject of judgment uh, is one that is easily misunderstood. Uh, the words that are, that are translated judgment in the scriptures and refer to this doctrine have the idea of making a correct understanding, to make a judgment between two opinions, um, to understand a situation or a dispute, and to mete out a just recompense uh, to the issues of hand, to resolve the issue. And then it also includes the idea of being able to rule over or enforce that judgment uh, of reward or punishment. So the idea of judgment is the idea of fixing what is not fixed, correcting what is incorrect, and bringing about a restoration and a reconciliation, and then enforcing that so that it maintains the reconciled state. The ultimate judge is God, who will bring judgment to all men and to every nation. We'll talk about that. And this judgment will be full and this judgment will be righteous. It will include reward and punishment. And the judgment will be effected ultimately through Messiah Jesus. Salvation. Salvation is the restoration of the entire creation. Specifically including those who have sought God and await His salvation. While they are delivered from their enemies... Because the word salvation is more about deliverance from enemies than it's about saving of a soul in the way that we think of it. And they will be established into the kingdom of God where all the promises are brought into full operation. I think it's a loss that we have reduced salvation to a personal notion. The idea of individual salvation is certainly included in the scriptures, but it is a small part of the full salvation of God, which is the focus of the scriptures. Uh, but our individualistic psychology in America makes personal salvation the focus, and our, our uh, in some ways, overemphasis on evangelism with no tie-in to discipleship, preparing for that kingdom to come. Preparing for the world to come. Preparing for the eternity with God. Just getting on the list uh, is problematic. Um, salvation like judgment will, also, will be affected through Messiah Jesus. So if we had time, I would go through scores of scripture where you would see the word judgment and the word salvation in the same context. Because they are related terms. That's why I put them together. We have a tendency to treat them as if they're separate things. But they are, they are part of the same thing. And so I want to at least give you a flavor of that. And so I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. 1 Chronicles chapter 16 is when uh, they are bringing the Ark of the Covenant into a tent set up by David. Uh, and in the context of this... Uh, there is a reading of the Psalms. And the Psalms are woven together in this context to tell the story of God and to show that He is both judge and the, the Savior. Scriptures say in verse 8, 
Uh, well, let me pick it up in verse 23 because it, it starts with uh, this idea of praising God and, and that he remembers um, his covenant which he made with Abraham and the promises that he made to Israel and all of that. When we get to verse 23, it says, uh, Sing to the Lord all the earth, proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. So proclaim the good news of his salvation, his Yeshua, day to day. Tell his glory among the nations. Notice this is not waiting for uh, the Great Commission uh, to do this. Because Israel is always supposed to be a light to the nations. His wondrous deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and great to be praised. He is also to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering. Come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. Tremble before him all the earth. Indeed the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations the Lord reigns. You know, the, re the salvation is not just the salvation of individuals or the salvation of Israel. It's about the salvation of all the nations. The, the offspring, if you will, of, of Noah. Let the sea roar in all it contains. Let the field exult in all that is in it. When the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord. The, the salvation extends to the created process. The animals and the plants are part of the salvation of God. For he is coming to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Then say, save us, O God of our salvation, and gather us and deliver us from the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory to your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. Now, you'll see this idea of judgment. You'll see this idea of restoration. You'll see the idea of the gathering back and the establishment of the kingdom. All of these themes run together. So that's why I gave these as background for what we're going to talk about next week and following as we look at the sequence of the events that are going to happen. So it's important that we think of that in, uh, in more holistic terms and less atomistic compartmentalizations. So we're going to look at the idea of the final judgment because that's the one that, that tends to get lost in this. People think that God does some judgment now. Some people think God does a lot of judgment now. Some people think that he does a little now. Certainly God does some judgment in the present life, just as Ananias and Sapphira uh, experienced. Uh, but there is an ultimate judgment at the last day that, that needs to be understood. So, in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, and we have looked at that passage before. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, beginning at verse 8. The scripture says, If a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them, and let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. 
This particular world is going to pass into the world to come with the restoration. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood. Let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. Follow the impulses of your heart and the desire of your eyes. In other words, you're allowed to experience life, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for these things. So all that we do will come under the scrutiny of the judgment of God, and we should be living with that mindset in in place. I don't think many of us do, because we've kind of got the idea that as soon as I accepted Jesus, all judgment went away. We're going to see that from the scriptures, that's simply not true. That's a false emphasis of the doctrine of salvation. Now, if you keep reading, he says, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come. Uh, And he um, addresses that. But I want you to look at the last verse, chapter 12, uh, verse 14. Uh, Well, let's pick it up at 13. He says, the conclusion then, when all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to To every person. For God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden. Whether it is good or evil. Not a a comforting passage. Um, We sometimes think. Well I got away with stuff. Nobody knows. Only God knows. And he's forgiven me. But the scripture doesn't say. That that's how it works. Uh, We all face a time of judgment when every act and every deed and every word is going to be accounted for by us before our accusers. Uh, And while that won't take away our salvation, it is something to be considered in the way we live our lives. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, a passage you're very familiar with, the scripture says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Uh, That judgment is something that all of us, whether we are believers or non-believers, are going to uh, stand before God in that sense. So let's make it clear that this is a judgment that includes the believers. Because I, I was taught both explicitly, with verses out of context, and, uh, and, both, uh, and also implicitly uh, by those who, who brought the gospel to me, that I was not going to ever face any judgment of God. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that verse continues about those who walk in after the Spirit and not after the flesh. Because uh, those who walk after the Spirit, as Paul says in Galatians, end up doing nothing that violates the commandments. But those who walk after the flesh violate the commandments. And that verse doesn't say there won't be a judgment for that. So let's look at Romans chapter 14 beginning at verse 8. If we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. This is a believer perspective. That I have been called out of the world, I have come to the Lord, and I am now for the Lord. I am to glorify God in my body, which is His. 
For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Those of our loved ones who have gone to be with the Lord, their body is dead, they are with the Lord, he is their Lord, he is our Lord, we are the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. As it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall praise, give praise to God. It really, the text, the alternative text and the text that's coming from here is that they will confess to me. So then, Paul says, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, we should not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, that we will not become an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. In other words, we ought to be focusing on our own behavior and not on the behavior of others, because we're going to give an account not for them, but for us. I did a Q&A this week. And it was amazing to me how many of the students at CBU want to know how we as Christians can correct other people's behavior. If this person's doing this, how do we as Christians tell them to stop it? If this happens, how do we as Christians tell them to stop it? It's not our job. Okay, There are circumstances under which we may confront each other, and the Scripture tells us that. But our primary job is to focus on ourselves. And to see what we need to change in our own behavior. So uh, he is talking about this to believers that we have to give an account uh, for ourselves. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5. A passage that we will look at great detail next week. Because this talks more about that intermediate state. Verse 10, he says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope we are made manifest also in your consciences. Now Paul's saying, look, at one point we are all going to sit or stand before a judgment seat of the Messiah. And he will bring his reward. And reward there means both recompense of good and recompense of evil. There will be a dealing with us. We sometimes think, well, but I'm forgiven for that sin. Yes, we are. David was forgiven for his sin with Bathsheba, right? But he suffered throughout his life a punishment that God gave him. The idea that we are not going to be condemned eternally is not the same that we are going to suffer correction in this life and in the life to come. Jesus specifically says that the servant who knew his, who didn't know his master's will, will be beaten with a few stripes. The one who knew his master's will and didn't do it will be beaten with many. To whom much is given, much is required. But even ignorance of the commandments is not going to keep us away from 
uh, addressing that. Now, again, we've been taught, don't worry about the commandments. You just have to believe and everything's okay. Apparently, the scriptures don't teach that. 1 Peter uh, chapter 4. First Peter four says in um, in in verses two to five. It would say that if I could get to it. We should not live the rest of our time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Our calling to Christ is to get on the road of obedience to Christ, not to live our own life. And we have a tendency to live our own life and then ask God to bless it instead of live in obedience to Him because that's where His blessing is. For the time has already passed sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Peter says, you had your time in the world. You've been called out of that. Okay? So don't go back there. In all this, they are surprised that you don't run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. When you pull away from your friends who do that, when you pull away from that crowd, they go, hey, jerk, what's wrong with you? You were, you were as crazy as we were, Right? Oh, you got religion? You know, that kind of stuff. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So, again, the gospel pulls us out of that. It doesn't bring grace so that we can continue that. And that's, that's uh, an important thing. When we get to verse 17, he says, It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous man is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? It is important for us to keep in mind here that some of our judgment is going to take place in this life. Because the scripture says that God will judge us here so that he will not condemn us in the other world, right? So sometimes Christians get more of their punishment here. That's why the book of Hebrews says, if you continue to sin and God doesn't correct you, it's because you're not a legitimate child. You're not really God's. The person who says, boy, I must be full of grace because no matter what I do, God doesn't do anything about it. That person should be very afraid. And those of us who have rebelled against God and he has put his hand upon us and brought us back know that that is the grace of God that he brought us back from the, from the precipice. So finally, we'll look at 1 John chapter 4 for this deal about the final judgment. 1 John chapter 4, verses 15 and following. 
So John says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we have come to know and have believed that the love which God has for us, God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And by this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in the world. Now, what is he saying? John is saying, we believe in Christ and therefore walk in love. Well, what's love? It's the commandments. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love one another. Right? All the commandments are the walking in love. And by that we are perfected. And we are perfected in that process so that we know that God is abiding in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And as we walk in that way, we have confidence that in the day of judgment, though we will face consequences of our sin, we will not face eternal destruction for our sin. And that is a great comfort. So the idea of judgment and ultimate salvation is found throughout the scriptures. So we're going to look at that uh, in, a, in a more detailed sense. And it ties into the symbolism that we use at Yom Kippur. Um, and so hopefully, since we've been doing that, you will see this. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, beginning at verse 11. John says, I saw a great white throne in him who sat upon it, from whose presence heaven and earth fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, the small and the great, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I want you to catch the imagery here. There are there are, if you will, two book structures here. There are the books of the deeds of mankind. We're going to look at passages related to that. And then there is the book of life. And there is judgment coming on our deeds from the standpoint of what we've done and not done. And then there is the indicator of eternity, which is the book of life. And both of those situations are used in the judgment. So at Yom Kippur, we usually have the two books, one's brown and one's black, uh, as the books of the judgment. And then we have a red book that is uh, representative for us of the book of life. Both of those judgments are here. Talk a little more about how the second death and the second life and, and all of that happens next week. But I want to look at those books of, of judgment and the book of life uh, this time. So turn with me to the Psalms, beginning with Psalm 56. We're going to look at uh, three Psalms real quickly. Psalm 56. 
where is John getting this idea? I mean, I saw, he saw the vision, but where did he get the idea of these books and the book of life? In, in uh, chapter 56 of Psalm, or Psalm 56, um, verses 8 through 13. You, Lord, have taken account of my wanderings and put my tears in your bottle. Are they not written in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render a thank offering to you. For you have saved, delivered my soul from death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Indeed, you've kept my feet from stumbling so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. God takes account of all that we do. And those who walk in His ways have confidence towards that day of judgment. In Psalm 139, Verses 15 and 16. You know this passage. This is the one that so beautifully talks about the forming of the child in the womb. And the intimate knowledge that God has of every, everything that is going on in us. And in 15 and 16 he says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was in secret. And skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. He's talking about being in the womb and forming. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. God's books. I mean, you can almost see this book of each person, if you will. I mean, some people think that it's the books of deeds, and some people think it's the books of lives. I tend to think it's the books of lives. There's a book written, and, and I've got a page, I've probably got several pages, <laughs> where God is recording from the very moment of conception all that has happened and all that I've said and all that I've done. If I could have a few days and an eraser, you know. To change, to edit the story a little bit. Uh, my story, whenever it's Bruce, it's not a very pretty story. Whenever it's God, it's an incredible story. And I am trying desperately to move my behavior in the direction of his story and not mine. And then in uh, Psalm 69, just back a little ways there. The psalmist understanding this idea of the books in in verse 28 says. Talking about uh, those who walk in iniquity. 
May they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. Now, this is a different book. This is not the book of the deeds. This is the book of life. We sometimes call it the Lamb's book of life. It is the book of life wherein, by grace, through faith, we have been saved. But there is both sets of books. And we live our lives as if this book is written absolutely set and I don't have to worry about anything else. And that's not good thinking. We will be judged for all our words and deeds. Jesus said even our idle words. And this will bring us reward and loss according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where our works will be tested by fire. And based on our behavior, we will be great in the kingdom or least in the kingdom. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, those who do the commandments and teach others to do so will be great in the kingdom. Those who don't do the commandments and teach others not to do so will be least in the kingdom. doesn't say they won't be in the kingdom, but it says that they will be in a lesser position, a lesser status. You know, we've been taught we'll all be equal in heaven. Not, not biblical. Uh, there are degrees of punishment in hell. There are degrees of reward in the kingdom. We'll talk about that next week. And we are to allow God to be the judge and not seek recompense ourselves. Give room to the wrath of God, Paul says in Romans. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. There is nothing that will be done to us. We can suffer without fear that we're going to be ripped off because God will compensate us for all suffering in the kingdom. And so in some sense, you can put the reward of your suffering off to the kingdom. If you go after it yourself, you have your reward. This idea of getting the reward now when it's temporary instead of in eternity is a big issue in the scripture. If you want your judgment now in the temporal sense and your reward in the eternal sense. But American Christians tend to want their reward in the temporal sense and they're going to face judgment in the eternal sense and that's not good. So, that judgment, however includes more than just obedience to the commandments. It actually involves a complete stewardship of our lives. So I want you to turn with me to Matthew 25. We're going to stay there a little bit. Uh, Matthew 25 is a uh, very important uh, passage. Its context is Matthew 24, obviously. Matthew 24 is Jesus' explanation of how the end of time will come and what the sequence of the events will be. We'll talk about that later, but at this point, I want you to see that he is warning them about being ready. Now, he begins in the first uh, part of uh, Matthew 25 of talking about preparing for the kingdom. And he talks about the virgins. The virgins, we talked about last week, the idea of the bridegroom and the inheriting the kingdom and that those are connected. The, the, the wise virgins and the foolish virgins are going to be those who prepare for the kingdom and therefore are entered into the kingdom. And those who wait 
you know, I'll repent later. I'll turn around my life later. I'll, I'll wait until I've had my fun and I'm older and who cares. And then I'll do it. That, that person is a fool. And fools tend to never repent. Because it's always just a little longer. A little folding of the hands. A little slumber. A little sleep. Just one more. And that one more becomes one more. And that's the, the, the one who practices righteous is righteous. And the one who practices the works of the flesh is of the flesh. So he does that with the twelve virgins. Then he goes to the passage I want to look at. Verse 14. 25.14. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven again. He says, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey, who's called his own slaves and entrusted them his possessions. To one he gave five talents, another two, another one, each one according to his ability, and he went on his journey. Notice he gave to them each according to his ability. Almost sounds like the gifting that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, Right? The Holy Spirit gives to us gifts severally as He wills. And we are to exercise those, Paul says, according to our faith. So it's according to our ability. So he says, Immediately the one who received the five talents went and traded with them and gave five more talents. He's about his master's business. In the same manner, the one who received two talents gained two more. But he who received one went away, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And the one who received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you've entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more. And the master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. A parallel to the joy of the kingdom. And the one who had received two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. And I was afraid and I went away and hid your talent in the ground. I didn't want to lose it. (laughs) So see, here, have what is yours. And his master said, you wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I would reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have at least put my money in the bank and on my arrival I would have received it with interest. So take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has, more shall be given and he will have abundance. Uh, And the one who does not have, even what he does have, will be taken away. Now look at verse 30. Throw out the worthless slave into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gang, that is a reference to the lake of fire and hell. This is a person who believes that they are saved. They fear God. They just don't obey Him. Many will say in that day, 
Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this great stuff in your name? Boy, we carried on ministries and we, we built our own reputation as being believers. And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. The person who knows God walks in God's ways and is as he is in the world. And the person who doesn't know God walks in his own ways and tries to cover it up to make it look like he belongs to God. And the judgment will bear that out. So the stewardship of our life is part of this process. And then, not only will we as individuals be judged, but there is a judgment of cities and there is a judgment of nations. I don't have time to flesh it all out, but since it's right here in the same context, we might as well take a look at it. In chapter 25 of Matthew, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, we'll see that next, next week as He returns to earth uh, on the clouds of glory with all the angels, all the holy ones, and the dead in Christ. All the nations will be gathered before Him. Now who are the nations? The nations are not Israel, right? The nations are the nations that were the children of Noah. In other words, humanity. And all of the nations will be brought before him because as the Lord establishes his kingdom, he is going to let some of those kingdoms continue into that kingdom where he will rule and reign with a rod of iron. He will say, France, let's see if you should be in the kingdom. America, let's see if you should be in the kingdom. Canada, let's see if you should be in the kingdom. Iraq, North, North uh, Korea, let's see if you should be in the kingdom. Ooh, judgment of the governments, judgment of the nations. So he says, they will be brought and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Judgment of the nations. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father. Blessed of his father? God blesses nations? What's the basis of blessing the nations? Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Because I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you visited me. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry? And feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and we came to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. You remember the Abrahamic covenant? Those who bless you, Abraham, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. This is in reference to how the nations treaties Israel. Crimea and Russia better wake up. 
They are treating Jews not very well. Now, I believe we're included that this also matters how a nation treats Christians. Who is my brother and my mother, Jesus said, those who hear the word of God and keep it. The nations will be judged on how much they make us suffer and how much they take care of us. The blessing of God is on the nation who cares for God's people. And the curse of God is on the nations who curse God's people, even the least of them. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And you'll say, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it, to the least of these, you did not do it to me. You remember what Jesus said to Paul when he persecuted the early believers? Saul, Saul, why persecute thou me? We are the body of the Messiah. Israel and the Gentiles from the nations. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So there is a judgment not only of individuals, but judgments of nations into that context. And we'll see that again as we go through this, uh, this series. Um, the scripture talks about the queen of Sheba rising up against a generation. There's a generational judgment. My generation's not going to fare so well. Uh, my generation has done more damage to this country and in some sense to the understanding of the gospel than the generations before it. Who knows about the generations after it. But we have certainly found a way to live our life any way we want and blame it all on God. And the scripture says that groups will rise up against this generation. He's talking about the generation that saw him. And they will say, uh, they will condemn the generation. Why? They will make accusation. Okay, we didn't, we didn't do so well, but we would have done better if we'd have seen what they saw. So there's generational judgment as well. So the salvation then is for the whole creation. Romans chapter 8. A passage many people have almost memorized. Romans 8 begins with, There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now the law of sin and death is not the Torah. The law of sin of death is the sin in our flesh Paul talks about in Romans 7. 
So Paul says you have to follow the commandments of God by means of following the Spirit. You can't do it by means of your own flesh. And boy, during Lent and during unleavened bread, we can tell when we're in the flesh try to do it because we start manipulating how to get around what we vowed, right? And, and all of that stuff because the flesh rises up and says, here I am. And we, like Paul, say, who will deliver us from this body of death? Because we realize we have to keep it under control and die daily. And that's what Lent and the season of the cross is all about. For what the law, what the Torah could not do, weak through the flesh, God did in sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, condemning sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law can be fulfilled in us. So that we can ultimately get to the place where we will obey fully the commandments. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Because those who are according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit put their mind on the things of the Spirit. The mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Two ways. A way of life, obedience to God. A way of death, following your own way. Because the mindset on flesh is hostile towards God. Why does God have to have so many stinking commandments? They get in my way. They cramp my style, right? Well, I know all this. I live this. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God indeed dwells in you. And if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Him. Because it's the Spirit that makes you willing and struggle towards obedience. If Christ is in you, then your body is dead because of sin. Yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal body through His Spirit which dwells in you. One day I won't be struggling against this flesh. The flesh and the mind and the Spirit will all Follow God. Then he says, the world is struggling. And he says that these uh, sufferings are not worthy to be compared. Verse 19 is really important. He says, the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God, which is the resurrection. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He's talking about the salvation of God that will include the entire world, including the trees of the field, clapping their hands and rejoicing. And not only this, he says, but we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan in ourselves, particularly at Lent, struggling against the flesh, waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. In hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? So the person who says, I don't have any problem with sin, that person is blind, foolish, and deaf. To the scriptures. The one who says, I can't obey God, is uh, misunderstanding God. The one who says, I won't obey God, is in li- in, uh, liable to hell fire. 
So he says, God gives us the Spirit so that we will hope in Him. And that ultimately nothing as we walk towards God will separate us from the love of God. Because we are sheep accounted for the slaughter. So even if we die, we will live with Him. That's pretty good stuff, you know. That's why Paul goes crazy at the end of eight, you know, praising God. Particularly at 11, he really goes into it. So, now one last verse. First uh, Peter chapter 1. Verse 5. He says that we will in... Uh, well, let me do it in three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance of the kingdom, which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. In other words, it's the kingdom coming from heaven. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. We're not saved yet. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revealing of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. If you love me, keep my commandments. You see how this connects? And though you do not see him now, like the book of Esther, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your lives. A salvation that the prophets spoke of, and which he goes on later to say that the angels want to look at. Judgment and salvation are tied together. And we have to see that or we will create a cheap salvation that allows us to blaspheme and sin against God thinking that we're following the will of God. And that is not His will and it is not His purpose. So the salvation ready to be revealed at the last time will be the whole creation. It will be Israel and those of us who are waiting for that salvation to come. It will restore this creation, make all things right through the judgment, and ultimately bring about the new creation wherein the new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem dwells. Let's pray. Father, help us.